0: we're talking this week, continuing a new series called The Level Path, and the idea is that God has given us a level path in life to walk. God has not made it difficult for us to obey Him, but one of the most challenging things that I think any of us might encounter is how do we overcome the sin, all the stuff that we drag into our walk with Christ that came from before we even begin to follow Christ, or even things that we've stumbled into since we began to follow Christ. Because when we get off the path that God has planned for us, we get into the the woods and the thickets and the thorns and the thistles and the uh, chiggers and all of the things that might irritate us and agitate us and hurt us and bring us down. And so we need to make sure that we understand that God has made a way for us to overcome these deeply rooted sins these deeply rooted habits that embed in our hearts I, years ago I had a, uh, a man tell me come into my office and say pastor if you could figure out a way for me to quit smoking every dime that I spend on cigarettes I'd give to the church and he said and it's, that's significant and uh, at the time I thought I have no idea I don't know I really don't know how to, how to get someone off of a chemical addiction like that. Um, but he was serious. He wanted some help, and I felt sort of helpless about it. In the years since, as I've studied God's Word, I've found that there are a number of principles that help us in our walk with Christ to overcome sin and to live a godly, victorious life. And last week, we talked about the most significant And foundational principle is that of grace. We have to understand what grace is. Grace is not simply that God has forgiven you of your sins. It is that. But grace is something else, too. It is a power. Grace is a power. And you have another power in your life. It's the power of sin. And that power of sin is stronger than you are. And that's why sometimes you stumble and you fall, and you feel like Paul wrote when... In Romans chapter 7 where he said, I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't want to do these things, but I keep doing them. Why is that? And the reason is, is that sin is not just something, an action that you commit or a thought you think or a word you say, but it's a living and breathing power within you that is stronger than your willpower to overcome it. Because sin has affected your heart. It's affected your mind. And so it's stronger than you. But if you're in... The lord jesus christ if you have a saving walking living relationship with him there is a greater power that's also within you it's the power of grace and so grace is not simply the forgiveness of sins but it is a transforming grace a transforming power that you that allows you to not have to live that kind of life anymore that allows you to make the necessary changes in your life the changes that may be difficult for you to face now as we begin this message today, we're going to talk about sorrow, because this is another aspect of the path that we have to walk down. Last week, I mentioned if we were to uh, describe a pathway, how would you describe it? Well, it's a stone pathway or a brick pathway. It's a, the yellow brick road, or it might be a, uh, a pathway of gold. You think of heaven, and we have the streets of gold. Pathways or streets or walkways are known by however they're made, Right? And so the pathway that God has given you and me to live in this life, that level path, the path that is not difficult to walk down, the path that's by a stream where you can find refreshment, the path, as Jeremiah says, that is uh, designed to where you will not stumble, that path that God has given you is not only a path of grace, but it's a path of sorrow. And today we're going to talk about using sorrow in your life to help you overcome your sin. And it might sound uh, sort of strange these days, you know, so many preachers and teachers on television uh, thinking and saying, well, you know, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you uh, to have all the amenities of life, and God never wants you to suffer, never wants you to be sad. But there's something missing in that kind of theology, the health and wealth prosperity gospel. And what's missing is the truth that God has allowed sorrow to be a tool in our lives by which we can make serious change. And so uh, we're going to talk about sorrow today. And to do that, we're going to talk about Paul and his relationship to the church at Corinth. Now, when, when the Apostle Paul uh, found the Lord Jesus Christ, really when the Lord Jesus just found Paul and cornered Paul and blinded Paul and met Paul in a supernatural way, All was forever changed. And Paul uh, learned that Jesus had this plan for his life, that Paul would be the apostle to all the Gentiles, all the the people who were not God's elected people, all those who were not Jews. It was Paul's job to reach them. And uh, really an overwhelming task. And Jesus, by the way, had a, a statement that he said Uh, that I must show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul knew about suffering. Paul knew about sorrow. And one of the tasks that Paul had to do was he found a church home, a base, Antioch, where he could launch his ministry into the Mediterranean world. And he took one missionary trip and began to plant churches. Then he took a second missionary trip. On the second missionary trip, one of the places that he visited was the city called Corinth. And he was spreading the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was gathering new believers and forming them into a community of faith called the church. And as you might imagine, that everywhere that Paul went, all of these churches would be different. I mean you and I would obviously say that the people of Leveland are probably a lot different than the people of New York City, right? And, and the people of Houston. And the people of West Texas are different than the people of East Texas. East Texans are not as friendly as we are. And so uh, every single community that Paul went to, he would go and find different kinds of people. The same thing was true in Corinth. Corinth was a city of, think about doubling Lubbock. The population of Lubbock. Corinth was that big. Over 500,000 people in the city of Corinth. It was Paul's job to reach them. Now how in the world could Paul reach so many people? But even beyond its large population, Corinth was very notorious for a few things. Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was right on the coast. It was a naval city. And so there was a lot of traffic coming in and out of Corinth. Corinth had some incredibly wealthy people. And this stood in stark contrast to the incredible amount of poor people that were there, slaves that were there. Even those slaves that had been set free by their masters had nowhere to go. Think about it. If you're a slave and your master says, you know, you've done a good job for me, you're dismissed. You're free it's essentially being fired. Because what kind of skill set are you going to have? Are you going to go to the small business loan association, get out a loan and start your new dream? No, not that that day. And so you had a large number of slaves and and really even freed slaves who would wander the streets at night, sleep on the streets. Incredibly poor people. This was the city that Paul was going to. And if it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, harder even for that to happen, then for an eye to go through the, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then what kind of task did Paul have in reaching the wealthy, much less the poor there? Corinth was known for its wealth and this vast dichotomy between its poor and its wealthy, but even more so, Corinth was really known for widespread immorality. There was an abundance of male and female prostitutes in Corinth. Immorality in Corinth was not just tolerated, it was celebrated. Sound like any society today? People would travel from all over the Mediterranean, literally, they would come from all over the Mediterranean to go to Corinth, because that's where they could get all of their sexual fantasies fulfilled. Because what happens in Corinth They thought stayed in Corinth. They were wrong, but that's what they thought. In ancient times, there was even a temple set up to the false goddess Aphrodite, who's the false god of love. And um, it it reminds me of an article I read just a couple of uh, months ago. A a new church in Indiana uh, was going to begin, and it got its approval from the Secretary of State to be a nonprofit in that state. It's the Church of Cannabis where they're going to worship by smoking marijuana together. And so you think, that's ridiculous. That's not real worship. Neither is a, uh, uh, an idol set up to Aphrodite, where you can imagine all kinds of sexual perversions would take place under the guise of worship. But that's what was happening at Corinth. There is also a temple at Corinth. It was the temple of Apollo. You've heard of Apollo. Apollo was the false god of the sun. Apollo was the false god of healing and prophecy and poetry and music. Um, he was believed to be the protector of crops, the protector of herds. And so if you had a crop, if you had a herd, if you had something like that, you would go down to the, go down to the temple of Apollo, and uh, you would um, make a donation to the priests there. And you see, this, these are the modern-day ruins of that temple uh, at Corinth, the temple that was set up for Apollo. And one particular belief of the people there was that the false god Apollo spoke through a female priestess and she was called an oracle. And this woman would throw herself into an emotional frenzy as uh, vapors of all kinds of different smells would rise up around her. And then once she got really fired up and stirred up, she would utter and babble incoherently. And her babblings would then be interpreted. By a priest. And so it's not surprising that at the city of Corinth, when some of these people heard about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, that they began to follow Christ and that they also brought with them some of their hang ups, some of their issues, some of their beliefs, even. And so, what did Paul find? What do we find when we read the books of First and Second Corinthians? We find wealthy Christians segregating themselves from unwealthy Christians. We find immoral habits that were difficult to give up, and even sometimes the church celebrated sexual immorality and Paul had to deal with that. We find the practice of ecstatic babbling continued, and so when Paul went to Corinth and he started this church and gathered believers. He had a difficult task, and he stayed there, perhaps longer than he had planned, but he stayed there 18 months, and he started that church there. But because the issues there at Corinth were so numerous and so deeply rooted and so hard to deal with, he ended up writing four letters to the church at Corinth. Two of them are lost. The other two we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And eventually, the church itself was in danger of being led astray by false teachers. False teachers came in and said that, hey, you're not saved by this Jesus fellow. You're saved perhaps maybe by following him. That's okay if you want to do that. But really, you're saved by doing good works, by being real religious, by going back to this practice of Judaism and and obeying the Ten Commandments. That's how you're going to be saved, these false teachers came in and said. And they accused Paul of mismanaging money they accused paul of not having god's authority and they accused paul of being a bad preacher and paul had to rebuke the church he had to call the church to faithfulness to christ and so when he rebuked the church in one of his letters the church responded good for them and how did they respond They responded with sorrow. They were deeply saddened that they were led astray by these false teachers. They were deeply saddened that they were not being obedient to God. They were truly sad about what they had done. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever encountered someone who was truly, sincerely sad? about what he had done and yet that sadness did not produce a change in his life sometimes our sorrow leads to a real change of life but sometimes it doesn't and my prayer today is that you and I will soak in the words of the Apostle Paul about the sadness that we experience when we wander off from God's level path that He has prepared for us. So I'd ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. We'll read verses 8 through 11. Paul responds to their sorrow with these words. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And this is the key verse, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Paul talks about two different kinds of sorrow worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is legitimate, it's real. It's a real emotion. It can be as emotional as godly sorrow. Okay, so I'm not saying that worldly sorrow is fake. It's very real. There's actual sadness. There's brokenness. There's perhaps even tears. But here's the question. What are we sad about? You know, when some people get caught in a sin or caught doing something wrong, they get in trouble. What do they get sad about? They get sad about the reputation. They get sad maybe about losing their job. They get sad about losing money, or even disappointing their family, or even losing their family. Why are those things important to us? Well, those things your reputation, your job, money, family those things bring us comfort. Those things bring us security. Those things bring us pleasure. We don't want to lose those things. It's natural. And there's nothing wrong with not wanting to lose any of those things. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's not that self-preservation is wrong. It's not that wanting to keep your family from getting hurt is wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It's that being sad about the loss of those things won't produce lasting change in your life. It just won't. Why? I want you to understand this. Here's why worldly sorrow, no matter how many tears are cried, no matter how broken someone appears to be, here's why it won't bring change. It is because when you focus on your reputation, your job, your money, your family, where's your focus? It's on you. It's on everything that affects you. Worldly sorrow focuses on everything the world has to offer. I messed up. I don't wanna lose my reputation. I don't wanna lose my job. I don't wanna lose my money. I don't want to lose uh, my family. Let's rephrase it the way it really is. I don't want to lose the things that affect me. I don't want to lose the things the world has to offer me. And you might, maybe you're still saying, well, you know, so what? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with not wanting any of those things to be lost? Here's what's wrong. Because worldly sorrow does not produce a change of heart. Worldly sorrow leads to death. There is a sorrow, Paul says in verse 10, that leads to death. A sorrow over sin that leads to death. Why? Because it doesn't produce life change. It flows, worldly sorrow, flows from the same self-centeredness that caused you to sin in the first place. And if there is not a fundamental shift in the way that you live and believe and think from self-centeredness to God-centeredness, then yes, your self-centeredness got you in trouble. Your self-centeredness makes you sad about losing all the things that affect you. And guess what's going to happen next? Your self-centeredness is going to keep you there and you're going to get in trouble again. You will. It is the way we are made. It is the effect of the power of sin in our life. We are in a situation surrounded by, enveloped by, in an environment of self-centeredness. And you can be as sad as you want in your self-centeredness and it won't change a thing. That's what Paul is saying. There's a sorrow that leads to death. We have to make make sure that we're not fooled by thinking, I'm, I'm sad about what I did, therefore everything is good now. A heart that desires sin says, I will have whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't care if it's harmful. I don't care if it hurts God or those I love. I'm going to have what I want. That kind of heart isn't just in pursuit of its own pleasures. And worldly sorrow is obsessed with keeping the objects of your selfish desire. All the tears and all the pain are actually about the loss of all of your stuff. The stuff that you're about to lose. The stuff that you want to keep. You were living life for yourself, and now you're in trouble. You're about to lose it. And the self-centered orientation of your heart is the same. But there's another kind of sorrow, sorrow over sin that is actually beneficial. It's godly sorrow. And I think now you'll be able to see the difference. I hope so. The focus of godly sorrow is not you. The focus of godly sorrow is on God. It is on God himself. Listen, godly sorrow is pained over the break in your relationship with God. It is heartbroken that God has been grieved, that God has been offended. There's something in your heart when you sin against God that pains you because you love your Heavenly Father and He loves you and you've harmed your relationship with them. There's a sadness that God's holy law has been broken, that God's love has been ignored. The person full of godly sorrow has a heart that says, I want to please God. I'm more concerned about pleasing God than I am about any loss myself that i may suffer godly sorrow produces verse 10 says repentance without regret leading to salvation think about that godly sorrow produces repentance not just self-centered sorrow it produces a change in life godly sorrow here's the here's the most interesting thing to me That if it were not in verse 10, I don't think I would even understand it. But godly sorrow produces no regret. How many times have you messed up? Oh, I really regret that. If I could just live my life over, if I could just do this over again, I wouldn't have done that. I really regret this. Godly sorrow produces no regret. That doesn't mean you're happy about what you did. What it means is you don't beat yourself up. Because you understand that you have a God who loves you, who forgives you, who does not condemn you. And the godly sorrow is very real. It can be very emotional. But it is not a tool by which you kick yourself repeatedly for hours and months and years on end about something that you did. Godly sorrow does not lead to death, but it leads to salvation. Why? Because godly sorrow will change your life. Godly sorrow is a reflection of the real God at work in you. The salvation that is within you. We're going to talk briefly about the marks or the characteristics of godly sorrow. And we see these characteristics listed in verse 11. I may say them in just slightly different terms. But first of all, godly sorrow is fervent and diligent. What does that mean? Worldly sorrow feels conviction briefly. Oh man, I blew it. I did it again. I messed up. Raps. Man, I feel bad about that. Okay. I'll pray about it. All right. God, I'm sorry, you know, help me not to do that again. Okay. And so worldly sorrow feels conviction briefly, it responds in prayer briefly. It determines to fight against sin briefly. But after a while, you know that fear of losing your reputation, your job, your money, your family? It it all goes away. That fear does. And you're right back. You never had a a change of life. You're still swimming around in your self-centeredness, even though you felt sorry about it. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is not short-lived. Godly sorrow gets busy. Godly sorrow fervently fights sin in a long-term battle godly sorrow secondly works to eliminate that difficult sin from your life it works it does what is necessary to get that sin that deeply rooted sin that maybe you brought into your christian life it works to get it out worldly sorrow doesn't have staying power i mean eventually when you're still swimming around in your self-centeredness that temptation comes up again and you give in again but godly sorrow says whatever it takes Absolutely, whatever it takes to get rid of this from my life, I'm going to do it. And so if it means that I am accountable to another believer, I'm going to do it. If it means I take radical measures in my life and I cut something out of my life that's painful, I'm going to do that. Third, godly sorrow hates. Hates sin. You know what worldly sorrow hates? Worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin. sin. Oh, man, my reputation. I don't want to lose my reputation. Worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow hates sin itself. It weeps over a heart that chose transgression over faithfulness. Godly sorrow is aware that God knows god knows even if nobody else knows god knows there's an awareness that he is watching that he knows in psalm 51 verse 4 the psalmist it was david he had sinned against bathsheba he had sinned against uriah sending bathsheba's husband out to the front lines of battle and having him murdered having him killed in battle But David does not say, I've sinned against Bathsheba, although he obviously did. He does not say, i sinned against Uriah, although he obviously did. His prayer in Psalm 51, verse 4 is, against you, you only have I sinned. There was such an overwhelming presence of the idea that God is in my life. That David felt like, His sin was only against God. And so godly sorrow hates the sin itself. Godly sorrow is alarmed. It becomes alarmed. You know, worldly sorrow produces a misdirected fear. (gasps) People are going to find out. Oh, people are going to find out. Oh, I'm going to panic. Someone might find out that I messed up, that I did this. That's what worldly sorrow fears. In fact, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, great verse. It says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. I love that. You know you have a wicked heart. If you're running and fearful, the people are going to find out when no one's even paying attention to you. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, really doesn't care. If people find out about your sin. Why? Because God knows. And his opinion is the only opinion that really matters. Fifth, godly sorrow <laughs> leads to longing and concern for restoration. There is a deeply rooted desire to make things right. You know what worldly sorrow does? You know, when you're, when you're caught up in your sin and you uh, get caught or whatever, you're about to get caught and you're really sad about it, you're really f- afraid that people might find out about it. You know what worldly sorrow does? It tries to minimize the hurt caused to other people. It's centered on you. It's centered on maintaining your reputation. But godly sorrow seeks to restore relationships that have been broken. Godly sorrow says, I need to make this right with someone else. You know what I've witnessed so many times in in Christian circles and churches? Uh, I've witnessed so many times... There be some kind of problem, and there's a lack of willingness to make things right. There's a lack of godly sorrow. We just sort of want problems to disappear, problems to go away. Godly sorrow, sixth, leads to a desire for justice. Worldly sorrow says I want to avoid the consequences of my sin. In fact, worldly sorrow says I want to choose the consequences of my sin. But that's not your choice. Because the devil will make you pay a lot more than you ever thought you'd have to pay. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is willing to accept the consequences of sin. Whatever those consequences are. On January 19, 2004, the Fort Bend uh, County Sheriff's Office received a very tragic phone call. It was a call from a mother who had gone to her daughter's apartment. She had not heard from her daughter in uh, some time and she went there and discovered that her, her daughter was dead, 19-year-old daughter. Ashley Wilson was dead there. It looked like she had killed herself. So they did an investigation. There was even a, a note They talked about the fear that she was pregnant and that her boyfriend uh, didn't really want to be a part of her life and, and so she got, looked like she got despondent and killed herself and that's what the state ruled and it became sort of an open and shut case. And that was until her former boyfriend, Dan Leach, came under conviction about what he had done. About six weeks after he murdered her, he couldn't get past his guilt. He went down to the river and he prayed. And he believed God was telling him to confess, to make this right. And so he knew what he needed to do, but he was really struggling with it. I mean, here he is in the state of Texas, he knows what Texas does to murderers. And he was scared about the consequences, as you could imagine. And uh, so as he was struggling and he knew what God wanted him to do, he went and saw the movie that had come out, The Passion of the Christ. And that movie so touched him as he could visualize what the Lord Jesus had actually gone through and how the Lord Jesus died on the cross for the thieves that were next to him and the murderers and for all sinners. That settled it. He went to the sheriff's department. And he confessed his crime. They were absolutely stunned. In fact, they didn't want to believe him. They thought he was making a false confession. But he shared details about the crime scene that only he could have known. And in the end, he even uh, confessed. And Although his attorney initially pled not guilty on his behalf, he admitted all of his crimes to the jury and he received, he was hoping to receive a 20-year sentence which would be the minimum for the crime that he was charged with. But he received a 75-year sentence and he's eligible for parole in 2041. Why? Why would he confess? Real guy, Dan Leach. He had gotten away with murder, literally. <laughs> He'd gotten away with it. Why did he confess? Because his sorrow was a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow would have kept it a secret, but a godly sorrow makes things right. He came clean. I would ask you today to ask yourself this question, whether you have godly sorrow over your sin I want you to listen to a passage of Scripture in Psalm 25. This is a Psalm of David. He writes, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his trouble.